tonight is uh, September 17th, 2014. The message tonight is called Tension. And uh, how many of you think of tension as a good thing? Not one hand went up in the room. You know, tension is one of those things that we normally fight to avoid. Uh, I've been told that I'm a confrontational person and that most people like to avoid confrontation. I understand it. I think what we're really trying to avoid is tension. And, and I get it. Uh, I, I don't like tension any more than anyone else, but I love what it produces. And if you want a slab that is really strong in a house, they make post-tension slabs. If you want a steel cable that, despite our best efforts, we're not able to cut with a bandsaw, uh, it, it's a high-tension steel cable. There are a lot of things that are made much better by tension. And Christians are one of those things. And we find out that God in his word has set up an inherent tension in our walk. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews. You'll be in the second chapter. We will start in the fifth verse. And uh, when you're there, go ahead and say there for me. Hebrews 2 in verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come. Olam haba. About which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. If we stop right there, do you have a hard time with this verse? There's nothing in all of the creation that's not subject to Jesus, really? Uh, because I know members of my own family that are not subject to him at all. I mean, at least you don't see it. How about your secular boss? Is he asking Jesus for uh, opinions about how he runs his workplace? Um, how, how about the local prison? In the local prison, uh, are they subject to Jesus? Sometimes the Bible makes an astounding statement and then you have to keep, keep reading. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Do you understand the tension between those two statements? Everything is subject to him, but we're going to go ahead and men up front. You don't see everything subject to him. Listen to how he continues. But we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. You may not see everything subject to Jesus, but we see Jesus, a glorified man, standing in the Godhead, the fullness of God in bodily form. Does that give you hope everything will be subject to Jesus? Can we say that God declares something before it happens and the process in between is often referred to as faith. Listen to what he says in verse 10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. What kind of suffering? Was Jesus declared a king when he was born? Oh, yes, he was declared a king when he was born. On the last day of his earthly life, was he declared a king? Yes, he was. In between those two statements, was he treated like a king? Not very much. Magi showed up and gave him gifts when he was a toddler. Shepherds uh, understood that he was a king from the heavens. Even Pontius Pilate got Jesus to tell him, yes, it is as you say. You are a king then. He's declared a king, but he died like a criminal. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. <laughs> Did you ever know any brothers that when you met one man, you met them all? In Baton Rouge, Louisiana, there was a family called the Boones. And if you met any one of the four Boone brothers, you might as well have met all of them. They lived by that age-old Cajun saying, don't start none, won't be none. But if you should happen to have stirred it up, all four brothers followed you around. That's just how it went. And when you met the youngest one, he had the exact same attitude as the oldest one. They were of the same family. And it was rather annoying because they were as tough as they were proud and boastful. And uh, 
unlike so many others, they didn't just talk a good game. All four of them always showed up together to uh, enact their game plan. And this was known. It was well known. I say that because if we're of the same family of Jesus and he was made perfect through suffering, how is it that you will be made perfect? And there are so many ways. Well, I didn't get an answer to that question. If he was made perfect, how will you be made perfect? Through suffering. We can spend all of our time trying to avoid it. We can try to get away from the tension of it. We can do anything we can to say somebody else, somewhere else. But every time you call out to God and ask him to make you holy, you are asking for that process. That's how this works. Anybody in here ever agonized over something that you know is God's will, but you haven't seen happen yet? Five of you. What are the others of you praying about? You praying about something other than God's will? It hurts, doesn't it? The time between you, you've conceived of what God wants, but you haven't seen it carried out on the earth, that hurts, doesn't it? I'm of the family of Jesus. And he was called a king, but he was not treated like a king. And yet God receives him as the king of this entire creation. And when he returns, he will prove it. His walk will be exactly what his word says that it is. I'd like to talk to you about these last few messages we've had. Think on these titles. Are we there yet? This was a message preached by Pastor Sutherland that was about being declared the recipient of the entire promised land. But how do you get it? Little by little. God didn't drive it all out in a day. One man says, look, God said we're going to get all this and all we have is this one city. Another man looks and says, he said we're going to get all of this and he's already proven it to us by giving us one city. This is not just about being pessimistic or optimistic. This is about the role of faith in the daily tension of our lives. When I began to preach to you about D-Day, I was trying to tell you that our deeds matter, that they display what it is that we really believe and that we needed an invasion of faith because we were in dark times. When we talked about chess pieces, we were looking at God's plan for our lives and saying, Lord, what I can do no longer matters. I want to move where you want me to move. I want to do what you want me to do because we recognize that this is difficult and it's easy to get off course and we want to be pieces in the master's hand. Amen? Amen. This last message, displaying his splendor. Nothing matters in our lives. What we eat, what we wear, where we go, what we don't do. Nothing matters as much as His glory being displayed in our lives. Would you agree with that? So there's an amazing tension, though, between our desire and the reality that we're walking in. How many of you feel like you're displaying the glory of God when you take out the garbage cans? Anybody change a diaper here recently? A glorious task, right? Look at Luke 12, 32 with me. We talk about this a lot. We can go ahead and put them on the screens. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the what? How many of you believe that word's true? Okay, he's been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sounds like you've got the kingdom, doesn't it? Somebody say, I got the kingdom. Oh, come on, I got this. Well... How do we balance I've got this with a scripture like Matthew 6, starting in verse 9? Get there. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So which is it? Do you have the kingdom or are you praying for the kingdom to come? Somebody said, and in both, I love you, but you're not going to make a very good lawyer. (laughs) It is and in both. But let us think on the tension between these two statements for a minute. Hey, hey, don't be afraid. You got the kingdom. And then Jesus tells you to turn around and pray, Lord, your kingdom, show up here. In fact, let us be doing the things on earth that, that are going on there. Which is it? Do you have it or are you waiting for it? Oh, come on now. Anybody been sick? Anybody in here been sick this year? My whole family's been sick at some point this year, right? 
Which is it? Are you already healed in Christ or are you waiting for the healing to come in Christ? Uh, we, by the way, we're going to have a doctrinal dodgeball on the subject. But I, I, I want you to, to appreciate that you, you stand in two places at once. We're already there and we're not yet quite there. And there's a tension in that. Uh, that tension is supposed to produce something in us. How about this one? Luke 22, starting in verse... 28, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, Jesus said. Next verse. And I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me. Are you waiting for the kingdom or has the kingdom been conferred on you? Well, it looks like it's been conferred on you, doesn't it? Am I wrong? Speak to me. Did Jesus just say that he gave them the kingdom or not? And yet, if you back up just a few verses from that, slide your finger up to the 18th verse and read it with me. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In the same chapter that Jesus says he has given them the kingdom, he said, we're not going to drink wine together. Sorry, Baptist church. We're not going to drink wine again together until we're doing it anew in the kingdom. He literally speaks about it as still needing to come. Anybody remember what his message was when he stood up to preach the very first time? The kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It's upon you. It's breaking forth. But here he speaks of it as still to come. So the reality of our Christian walk is that there is a now element and a not yet element. Boy, that's frustrating. How many of you have known that you were going to transition from one place to another? Like, let's just say God had called you to leave this city and go to another. Or maybe during the days that he called you from that city to here. How many of you like to know that you're a short-timer in a place and live in that kind of lame duck setting? It's tough, isn't it? We want to be all in or all out, and yet God himself has put us between those two things. He's put you in a position to have to act like something is true that you fully acknowledge may not be true in your practical experience this moment. How about Luke 6.20? In Luke 6.20, we have a beatitude that is being expressed. You can do this in the ones in Matthew as well. I just, we were already in Luke. In 6.20, looking at the disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor. Can we all agree that's in the present tense? Not who will be poor not who were poor. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, not yours will be the king. In fact, to make matters more interesting, some of the Beatitudes are spoken of in the future tense. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will. <laughs> Blessed are those who mourn, for they will. But this one's not. This one is speaking presently. Blessed are you when you are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. In what way do we have the kingdom? One more time, run with me to the book of Hebrews. When you get to Hebrews, find the sixth chapter. In the sixth chapter, start with me in the fourth verse. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the... So which is it? Are we in that age or have we simply tasted of that age how many of you have tasted of the kingdom of god oh man when you've been born of heaven something of heaven is inside you it's a reality it's a surety it is there but do you have all you want to have and therein lies a real problem we would like for many of these experiences to be absolutely as sure as a mathematical formula but I want to show you some ways in which the Bible acknowledges this tension and what it was meant for. How was Jesus made perfect? Through suffering. And whose family are you in? When we think of suffering, you think of a Roman beating you, at least when you think in biblical terms. You think of somebody confiscating your property. But do you know what else is suffering? There is an agony involved in having to trust in what you cannot see. 
There is an agony involved in being told something is true that nobody else can see is true. And on one day you feel like it's true and on another you don't. But in the name of Jesus, you're not going to swerve from the left or the right. In first, let's take Romans 4, 17. And that way we can speak about the way in which the patriarch did this. In Romans 4, starting in verse 17. As it is written... I have made you the father of many nations. Who are we speaking about? He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls the things that are not as though they were. God calls the things that are not as though they were. So is he lying or is he speaking in faith? (laughs) Well, who would he have to trust? Himself. (laughs) All he would have to do is trust himself. Is he trustworthy? He sees the end of the matter from the beginning of the matter, but who cannot see that? So this is a way in which he can call you holy and then tell you to be holy. He can speak something into existence that is not there and then cause it to come about. Have you ever read the first chapter of Philippians? Somewhere around the sixth verse where he said, I'm confident of this. He who began a good work in you is able to bring it to completion. Is it all right to call a man a mechanic before he's graduated from trade school? Well, if you're God, it's okay because it's not uncertain. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Against what? All hope. He in hope believed. Was there a little tension involved in that? You ever read about Abraham's life and wondered what it must have been like to go announce to everyone, I'm a exalted father. Oh, that's really cool. Tell me about your children. Mm, Don't have any. Well, are you like an uncle or something? I mean, your, your brother's got a lot of kids. Brother died in Haran. Well, you must come from a really big family. Dad died in Haran too. Well, your wife's a fertile myrtle, right? I mean, she's just showing all kind of signs. Eh, barren. Uh, who named you? <laughs> oh, you hadn't heard the best part yet. God has changed my name to exalted father of many nations. That just would seem downright audacious, wouldn't it? He doesn't have one kid at the time that's happened. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Say he faced the fact. Do not accept any Christianity that does not face fact. We face fact and we combat it with faith. The fact is there is not enough fish and bread to go around if we have five loaves, two fishes, and thousands of people. But faith says God is able to multiply what is not enough and make it enough. It is not faith to say, no, 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 just deny that there's not enough. That's not faith. That's some kind of wizardry with your mind. We live in a tension that says, I see what is not, and I have heard what God said is, and I live somewhere between those two things, but you watch out. God will cause it to come into being. Since he was about 100 years old and Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. When you're in tension, something happens. You either shy away from what God has promised or you dig deeper into what God has promised. And the deeper you dig into what he has promised, the more the tension has strengthened We would love to believe that we can just believe the moment that something was said to us, be completely untested and be as strong as God ever called us to be. But the reality of the biblical faith is that no patriarch received that kind of faith. No apostle received that kind of faith. Jesus Christ himself had to live out for at least 30 years the promises of God in his life in the tension between being a king and being treated like a criminal. And it does something in us. It strengthens us. Look at verse 21. Being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness is credited when we have heard what God says 
about us, about the world around us. And despite all evidence to the contrary, we move in the direction that God says. If you don't think that this is an agonizing thing, turn with me to 1 Timothy. Say there when you were there. I'm going to wait on all of you this time. Every once in a while, we have a Wednesday night where everybody is just sedate. Our faith is not sedate. Our faith is aggressive. Our faith is bold as lions. Our faith says, get out of my way, devil, or I will run you over. It was polite that we gave him a choice. Don't mistake my blinker as a request. It is an announcement. Not retreating, I'm advancing in a new direction. We have a bold faith. Is there such a thing as a good fight? I mean, how many of you like to see some great big old guy beat up on some little guy? Not one hand went up in the room. Does something inside you smile when somebody's being picked on and they're small and the one who's picking on them is big and he turns around and knocks him out? I love those videos. It's terrible. They're men made in God's image and I'm not supposed to love them. And something inside, it just speaks to me. I'm not even all that excited to see a perfectly even matched struggle. I'm not. I know everyone is that likes that kind of stuff. You want to see two boxers that are in their prime, all those things. I want to see the one that's past his prime, that is broken down, that is run out of the sport, knock out the heavyweight champion. That's what I like to see. I like the underdog. That, that just speaks to my heart. Paul speaks to Timothy and he says, fight the good fight of faith. How impossible is it though? The kind of things that are said to a Christian that are in tension between the truth. How about it's one thing to be caught in the tension of what God says and what the world says, right? That's one kind of tension. Have you ever been caught in the tension between two things that God has said though? Oh my goodness, that is a serious kind of tension. We're going to examine some of those in a minute. Fight the good fight of faith is agonai zome. That's where you get the word agony. Fight. Agonai zome. The good agon of pistis, faith. Both words fight there mean shockingly fight. (laughs) They can mean to strive, to contend, to struggle for. The apostle Paul is saying agonize the good agony of faith. It's supposed to hurt some. It's supposed to leave you rubbed raw some. It's supposed to cause you to bleed and to cry sometimes. It's supposed to be agony. And there's a good reason for it. In the middle of all of that suffering, in the middle of all of that difficulty, character is being born. This suffering perfects our faith. It makes us Holy. We're in the same family with the one who makes us holy and those who are made holy, Hebrews says. If Jesus had given up in the Garden of Gethsemane, would it make a difference? If Jesus had accepted someone's offer to become king early, would it make a difference? If Jesus had taken the easy way out and we never got past Matthew 4 because he accepted the devil's offer, would it make a difference? But the fact that he endured everything that he did, it proves him perfect, doesn't it? You're of the same family as Jesus. Do we have anything left to prove? See, I say we do. We can live in a world that says, I don't care what anybody thinks. I've got nothing left to prove. In fact, let me, let me submit this to you before we move forward. Have you ever heard about so much senseless, meaningless suffering? Anybody? Right? Every once in a while, don't we have, um, oh, somebody like George Clooney going, oh, the children in Darfur, right? Don't we? Every once in a while, you can have maybe Kanye West make a great political statement about (laughs) some people. What if there is no such thing as meaningless suffering? What if there is no such thing as senseless suffering? What if everything that was ever suffered was meant to produce something in the people? You say, but it's so bad out there. How bad is crucifying your son? 
And yet, if we didn't have that kind of tension, where would you be? I would maintain to you, Christian soldier, that our commanding officer never, ever has caused you to suffer in a meaningless way. He's giving you the opportunity to do something. He's building in you something. And it is for his glory and his splendor that you would be developed into who you are. This ought to give some meaning to some terrible things in your life. In Ephesians 1, 7, think of this. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. What do we have? What's wrong with y'all? What do we have? Come on again. What do we have? Ibrahim, what do we have? Oh, you got to stand up. What do we have? I want to hear it. You have it. Do you have it? How about you, Sash? Do you have redemption? You, Ray, you got redemption? I have it. Go seven more verses. What's the 14th verse say? Who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession? So do you have redemption or are we still waiting for redemption? So do you have partial redemption and we're waiting on full redemption? How does this work? How many of you have a day where you feel like you are God's chosen? Anybody? Oh, man, God's man of power for the hour. Look out! Here I am! Followed by a day where you're like, I'm barely hopefully saved. We're living in the tension between being declared redeemed and it not yet being a physical reality. Anybody got a gray hair? Anybody got no hair? You got a wart somewhere on an elbow. This is proof that you are not yet redeemed. And yet the Bible calls you redeemed. Despite all of our medical advancements, we're still dying at a rate of 100%. This is incontrovertible proof that the human race is not redeemed and yet we're redeemed. It's more like we're declared to be redeemed. And what did he give us as proof? His spirit. His spirit inside of you is testifying with you that you're redeemed. On the days you don't feel redeemed, his spirit is still there. On the days you didn't act redeemed, his spirit is still there. You're living in that tension and it's supposed to produce something in you. In Romans 8, in verse 15, For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. Another way to say it is the spirit of adoption. Say, I have received received. the spirit of adoption. adoption. Now look at the 23rd verse. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. You have the Spirit of adoption, but you're waiting for the adoption. And what does it cause inside of you? Groanings, it says. If you have never been reduced to groanings in your prayer life where you really don't even have another word to speak so that Eli the corpulent priest at Shiloh could come and lean over you and think that you were drunk, then you may never have really been caught in this kind of tension. But praise God, when you take a little Hebrew woman named Hannah and you put her under this kind of tension, do you know what comes out? Supernatural faith. This is the Holy Ghost flexing inside of you. This is the Holy Ghost who's rising up above your circumstances. God intentionally put you in this. We could divide into camps. We could say in one camp, no, 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 I already got it. It's done. Deny everything that you see other than the fact that it's done. Of course, they would be ignoring this scripture that says we're still waiting for it. So what we could do is we could get on this side and say, "Mm, you don't have any of it. I mean, God said we're waiting for it, so it's not there. Don't expect it. Don't look for it. Don't yearn for it. Just... And we might even have something like, I I don't have to name them. You can figure that out, can't you? We were meant to struggle in between these two things. 
We were meant some days to feel the adoption of the living God and other days to be painfully aware that we're not there yet. Our God lets you be there and not quite there all at the same time because it's forming something in us. How about Ephesians 2 and 6? The first time I read this in my Bible, I thought I misread it. Just to be perfectly honest, a book called The Believer's Authority in Christ written by Kenneth Hagin. I read it in his book and I crossed it out because I thought it was a mistake. And I went to my Bible and had to read it twice in my Bible because I didn't think it could be true. Now, I was only 18, but in the church I was in, these kind of things were never said. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Look at your feet. As beautiful as they are, are they in the heavenly realms? But he says they're in the heavenly realms. You are seated with Christ. Pair that with this idea. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 2. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. In Ephesians 2, you're in the heavenly dwelling. In 2 Corinthians 5 and 2, you groan and are longing for the heavenly dwelling. Have you noticed now the word groan show up twice? We got any mamas in here? How many of you went through your whole labor with a smile, handing out uh, sugar plums? And when you're in agony, sometimes there's a little groaning involved. We are going to fight the good fight. How dare Paul call your suffering a good fight, a good fight of but it is good. It's good for you. It's good for God. It's good for the whole planet. It might even prove that you are as genuine as God says you are. Somebody say amen. It's time to go ahead and acknowledge something. Let's take 1 John 5, 4. This is a good place to acknowledge something. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Could there be a stronger statement in all of the word? Everyone born of God overcomes the world. Are you born of God? Then we overcome the world. This is the victory. Come on, say victory. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. That's a, that's a bumper sticker scripture right there, man. Get that one tattooed on your forehead. Does anybody doubt the truthfulness of this? Let's look at James 3, 2. We all stumble in many ways. What? Are you born of God? Get the victory. Overcome the world. James says we all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault... In what he says, he's the perfect man. How do you reconcile those two things? We all stumble in many ways, and yet if you're born of God, you've overcome the world. Which is it? How can it be both? You're a walking paradox. You're like a, an enigma wrapped in a riddle. God has said something about you that only God could see as true, and you have to trust him for it. You have to look past your stumbling. You have to look past your faults. You have to look past not just the circumstances or what the world says, but what you yourself know to be true. And you cling to what God says. By the way, what was the victory that overcomes the world? Even our faith. The fight that you have to have to trust God every day ought to be an agonizing one. And if it's not agonizing, then I want to submit to you, you don't yet really know what it means to trust him. You may have heard these concepts before, but if you're not in agony over them, then you probably are either thinking too high of yourself or too lowly of yourself. The word puts you between these two principles, and it does it on purpose while we're speaking of between two principles. In Genesis 2, there's a tree in the middle of a garden, is there not? How was life in Genesis 2? I mean, how long were they in the garden? 
I don't know, but we could call them the salad years if you want. I mean, we got no idea how long they were there. But I would say it's pretty good. They're walking with God in the cool of the day, right? We got one man and one woman, so we got a whole host of problems that have not shown up yet. No, no inference that they have even their first child yet, right? How good is life? The only thing they know is what God has told them is good. They've got no knowledge of anything evil. Have you ever seen somebody learn something truly horrific in the shame that happens with it? They've never experienced that. They've never seen anything die. For as many years as they were there, and could have been thousands, we have no idea, it was good. You ever read Revelation 22? In Revelation 22, there's a tree and there's a garden. And the people of God are eternal again. Life's pretty good. The leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. It turns out it's just that tension in between those two trees that is so hard. Whoa, what is it for? This is your opportunity to show faith. This is your opportunity to be developed by tension. This is your opportunity to say, I know what God has said man's purpose is, and I know where God says we'll end up, and I'm going to live like it right now, even if it hurts me. So, yeah, somebody should say amen to that. Oh, I'm preaching better than you guys are listening. Irma, you could say amen to that, huh? Bob, you give me an amen? We'll sit here all night until I hear some amens. Larissa, do I get an amen? I'd like to talk to you about a different kind of statement of faith. So many times you see the word statement of faith and then what follows are the most generic principles that you could possibly find. It's almost as if our statement of faith was meant to offend no one, to make sure that there's not a chance anybody might not come to your church because of it. Not much of a statement of faith then. How about this? In Romans 6, say there when you're there, Starting in verse 1, let's consider this a statement of faith. 6.1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. Oh, friends, look into that word sometime. <laughs> we died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you realize that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin." Can we say that it is a statement of faith that you have died to sin? <laughs> Could you say it's a statement of fact? <laughs> oh. Every once in a while you ask a question to a large crowd like that and somebody goes, yes, yes, me, me. And you're like, <laughs> I'm going to avoid the temptation to challenge you on that. We are told here something that Every day in your life, there is evidence to the contrary. So how do you walk out this kind of statement of faith? The statement of faith that says you are dead to sin. How do you walk that out? I would say it comes in verse 11. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Are you dead or are you counting yourself dead? Considering yourself dead. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. How do you live out the statement of faith that says I died to sin? You don't let sin reign in your body. Do you see how faith and action are then made complete in each other? One says, I know it looks this way, but just watch. And the other says, I'm killing it little by little. <laughs> Every day I'm refusing to let it Reign in me. How do you deal with the tension between two truths? You make progress from this one to the next one. 
You might have to do it little by little. You might have to do it incrementally. You might be able to go an entire year and say, I'm only one city better than I was last year. But in the name of Jesus, you are moving forward. The kingdom is progressing. How about this one? In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, what an amazing statement of faith. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Well, praise God, then it's done deal. We're totally sanctified, right? I mean, you won't have an ugly thought in traffic. You can bind the cholesterol and the pancakes at IHOP. I mean, you, no need for life insurance. No need for locks on your doors. No need for any. I mean, you are new in Christ. The old is gone. I would say it's a statement of absolute faith. And the way that you carry it out is Ephesians 4, starting in verse 22. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. Well, I thought it was already gone. Well, I heard what God said, and now I'm living in a way to make it true. This is me carrying out the statement of faith. I'm putting off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your mind. Every time you have a thought that raises itself against the subject of being new in Christ, and you grab hold of the thought, and you throw it down, you have put feet to your faith. Your faith is being made complete by what you're actually doing. Is it different than to believe a thing and to faith a thing? See, believing it says, I believe what 2 Corinthians 5.17 said, but it doesn't require you to live like you believe it. Faith requires you to do it. Do you hear the difference? Today we can argue all day long about am I positionally righteous or am I told to be righteous? And the answer, of course, is both. You're declared righteous and then you're told to be what you have been declared. And then the argument becomes, well, how much can I not be that and still have the statement true? Men who think like that deserve what they will get. I would say you ought to be in agony over those two things. You might even have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How about 1 Corinthians 2 in 16? This has been one of my favorite charismatic verses. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have... We have... Oh, man. Next time you have a math problem, next time you have to troubleshoot an air conditioner... The next time you have an unsolvable problem, you just stand and go, I got to run to Christ. There may be things you can't do, but is anybody in here going to be so bold as to say there's something Jesus can't do? Then don't study for any more tests. Don't, don't prepare yourself in your trade. Every little Indian kid will come up to you in India and say, I, I want you to pray for my education. No, 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 no. Just confess over him. He's got the mind to Christ. Why do we know that's ludicrous? Because this is a statement of faith. This is something that is true, and yet that's not all there is to it. It's not quite that simple. How about Colossians 3, 1 through 2, for how to carry out your statement of faith? Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. We're told we have the mind of Christ, and then you're told how to reset your mind. So do we have the mind of Christ? Well, you have access to it. <laughs> do we have healing? You have access to it. Do we have salvation? Yeah, you can walk in it. Simply knowing that these things are true, is that enough? I, I don't think so by a long shot. I would actually say there's value in knowing that these things are not true, <laughs> but they can be. How about 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30? It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Say, I'm righteous as Christ is righteous. I'm holy as Christ is holy. I'm as redeemed as Christ is redeemed. You have good scriptural ground to stand and say that, but understand it is a statement of faith. 
say, well, how could you say that? If God said it, it's true. Yes, if God said it's true, but is it all God said? How about Romans 12 and verse 2? How do you be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus? I would say it happens when you do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve of what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The Bible calls you something over and over and over, and then it tells you how to walk in that calling. It's not enough to know what the Bible calls you, and it's not enough to simply try to walk in that calling. These two things work together. Every revelation has a response. And when you get the revelation that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, the response is to refuse to be conformed to the pattern of this world, to renew your mind. Guys, I hope that like me, you're experiencing the agony between these statements every day. I've not seen near the healing that I want to see. I've not understood the word nearly as well as I want to. I've read that I have the mind of Christ, but the mind that I'm actually operating with most of the time falls short of what the Bible says I can have. I can have the mind of Christ but I have to set my mind on things above. Yeah? There's an agony in that. When dealing with the difference between what the Bible says you are and what it also acknowledges that you are still becoming, we can rejoice in the agony of the good agony of faith or fighting the good fight of faith. Here's how Peter put it. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 7. These have come. Speaking of trials, speaking of these agonies, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine. Do you want your faith proved genuine? It happens when you've heard what the Bible says and you are striving to make it true in your life. Proved genuine and may result in the praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Have you ever noticed something? You don't have to turn to these. I just want to tell you that the apostles who went before us were no strangers to this. In Philippians 2.8, Paul says that, pray for me that I may have less anxiety. Tonight, Haley quoted Philippians 4 and 6, said, do not be anxious about anything. The same man that in the second chapter of a letter says, if you send so-and-so and you pray for me, I, I will, you know, I'll have less anxiety. Later in the very same letter says, don't be anxious about anything. We've always been caught, and he let you know. I mean, before he writes, don't be anxious about anything, he says, pray for me that I would have less anxiety. He's letting you know about that tension and what it's producing in him. The whole seventh chapter of Romans is about that tension. There's this good that I want to do, but I find there's evil right there next to me. Turn with me to Romans 7. We're going to close with these thoughts. In Romans 7, 21. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Why didn't he just declare it in faith? For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man that I am. This is the same guy that wrote you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Can he be both wretched and righteous? He's counting himself dead to the wretched part. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature or flesh if you like, a slave to the law of sin. He had both working in him, but he's judging Christ as bigger. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. 
For what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. Saints, we have an advocate. And the more tension that is there, the more you have to rely upon your advocate. I'd like you to hear just two very practical examples. In Acts 5, in verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. This word means to leap and spin hilariously because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. How did they deal with tension? Listen, are these men worthy of respect? Were they worthy of honor? Were they declared kings with Jesus, sitting on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes? They had been conferred with a kingdom. How were they being treated? Like common criminals, which was exactly the kind of tension that Jesus lived under. And so they counted it a joy to suffer that kind of disgrace. Have you ever read the fifth chapter of Romans? Could we go there? Romans 5, verse 3. Listen to what it produces. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. The living God is producing in us character of Christ. In other words, through what you're enduring, the tension between God saying you are holy and then telling you to be holy, the disparity between those things causes you to beat your chest and cry out to the God who both calls you holy and tells you to be holy to make up the difference for you. And persevering in that, knowing that God has said, heal the sick, raise the dead, and your practical experience of praying for someone in a coffin and them not getting out either causes you to throw away the book and say it doesn't work or to beat your chest and cry out to God to make up the difference between what He said you can do and the reality of what you're faced with. And something magical happens in this. That perseverance that you have to fight for causes you to treasure the character that is being revealed in you. Church, this is a genuine faith. I'm going to tell you, we can look for great men who have this mastered somewhere. And you'll only find them in books because if you met them in reality, you would know that they didn't. Or you can find the God that made you think those men were great because they wrestled with this tension. I love John G. Lake. I love Smith Wigglesworth. I love Lester Summerall. I... I love these great men that have gone before us, Leonard Ravenhill. I mean, you can go on and on and on, and I guarantee you every one of them lived in the exact same place you do, declared to sit in the heavenlies, but your feet are standing firmly on the earth, and you had to fight in faith for the tension between those two things. What did it produce in them? R.W. Schambach. What did it produce in them, David Wilkerson, what did it produce in them? We call them God's generals. They knew how to lead because they knew how to hurt. They knew how to pray because they knew they needed to pray. This is what God's developing in us. We can put rocks on our stage from Azusa Street, but this is what Azusa lived through that made that rock worth bringing here. Are you hearing me? So your hope deferred, your long-time struggle, this is your very great opportunity to show genuineness of faith and the character of Christ. We can neither give up and concede, nor can we declare it one. The truth is we're in the agonizing fight of faith, and it's worth being in. Could y'all stand to your feet?